The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. We're going to be in Matthew 16 this morning. We're continuing in our little opening series of our church. If you were here last week, you got to be a part of the grand opening. And so that was our very first worship service on a Sunday morning as Redemption Bible Church. And now this is what we affectionately call Reality Sunday. And so we had a lot of well-wishers and uh, people that uh, love us that were here last week. And uh, we're so grateful for them. And uh, uh, if you were here last week and you came back, uh, praise the Lord for you. And uh, we, we want to get into God's Word uh, with you. If this is your first time with us, uh, again, we are, we're uh, thrilled that you're here, and I look forward to meeting you after the service. But we're in this little three-week uh, series because we want to begin our church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Whatever we do, we cannot stray from that foundation of who God is in the second person of the Trinity in Jesus Christ. And so we used this, uh, this kind of framework for these first three messages of uh, what startup uh, gurus say that startups need. They need a secret, they need a source, and they need a supervisor. So last week, we looked at the secret of success, and that's found in Jesus, in Jesus' presence but today we're going to look at the source of our success here. In business, they would say you need capital, you need backers, you need uh, you know, those powerful people behind you in order to succeed at your business or your nonprofit or whatever you are starting up. But today we're going to see that our success is in Jesus' promise. When's the last time that you saw one, an advertising for a 100% guarantee? You ever seen one of those? Just last night I was watching football. And uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch my Badgers play because I don't get the Big Ten network. I'm from Wisconsin, and so I love the red and white. The Badgers, Wisconsin Badgers, they beat Nebraska, in case anybody cares, but uh, they did. Jonathan Taylor rushed for like 250 yards. It was a great night, but I didn't get to watch it. But so I was watching some other teams playing, I don't know, some uh, other, other game. But there was an Aflac commercial, and it was something about uh, uh, guaranteed protection, accident guarantee protection or something. And so we've, we've seen these things, these 100% guarantees from products, from banks, from those late-night infomercials, right? Customer satisfaction guaranteed. Husbands, when's the last time that you promised your wife, I will do it, honey? Does that happen in here? She's got the honey-do list, and she says, will you build this for me? Will you do this for me? Will you take out the trash? Don't worry. I will do it. You promise to do it. These guarantees, these promises, they're made, and they're based on both the character and the competence of the one making it, right? Can this person or this company come through with it? And all of us, I would say, probably have an examples of failed promises or broken guarantees, you know, we see those in the corporate world. Some, one that you're probably very familiar with is from back in the 1920s and Charles Ponzi and his international reply coupons scheme. You've maybe read about that or heard about that. Now it's become uh, in our common language of, you know, the Ponzi scheme, right? And uh, that was, there was guarantees for quick returns and big financial gains made, all built on uh, a lie, but we've also maybe had failed guarantees, failed promises, uh, maybe closer to home. Parents, family members, friends, those that have said they would do something and uh, did not. But there's something that I want you to become convinced of this morning. I don't want you to leave this sermon, to leave worship this morning, unconvinced of this foundational reality. You ready for it? I want you to become convinced of this in a world full of uh, failed guarantees and broken promises, the church has an unfailing source of success. 
Jesus promise. An unfailing source of success. Jesus promised to build it. And this isn't just something that I've come up with. This is in the scriptures. And so hopefully you've turned to Matthew 16 already. Are you there yet? It's in the New Testament. Matthew is, is the first book of the New Testament. It's probably two-thirds of the way through your Bible. And Matthew 16 is a pivotal chapter in all of the New Testament. Our focus this morning is going to be on 13 through 20. Follow along here as I read it. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So as I said, this chapter here, Matthew 16, is an integral chapter. It's very foundational for our understanding. It's probably, this whole chapter is probably in the top 10 of all the chapters in the Bible. It's one that you should know, and it's one that throughout church history has been a very, uh, uh, very important and pivotal in, uh, in, in our understanding of what the church is, where the church's power uh, is, and, uh, and then who's to lead the church. And so there's been lots of debate and different things here. We don't have time to go through all of that. But it's even, this chapter here is even a pivotal point in Jesus ministry. Because as you read through the book of Matthew, something changes in this section. And the rest of the book of Matthew uh, shows Jesus uh, doing uh, ministry even in a very different way. There's some titles here. We, uh, I just want to help you see this here. There's a, uh, chapter 16 really lays itself out into four sections. So the first 12 verses you could title, if you want to write these in the, the notes of your Bible, um, I don't know if you do that. It's, it's okay to write in your Bible, just so you know. Um, make those helpful notes and whatnot. It's, uh, it's good as you just dig into it to write those things down in there. So if you want to do this, this is something you can do. If you're using one of our Bibles, you can write in there too. Don't worry. But the first 12 verses, you could write, testing Jesus. So there's something very interesting that's happening in there because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two groups that did not get along, have joined forces to attack and to test Jesus. And it's on the heels of that then that we have our passage for today. So you could even write in the margins of your Bible, confessing Jesus, because it's here that Peter confesses him. Then the next, verse 21 through 24-ish, um, 23 you could title Offending Jesus, because right after this, then Peter sticks his foot in his mouth and, and uh, um, he offends Jesus, and then he gets rebuked. In the following section, then 24 to the end of the chapter, you could title Following Jesus, where he lays out the cost of discipleship. And so I just give you that. I give you the overarching viewpoint because we're just diving into uh, one section of scripture. And its context is very important, right? And so as you'll see here in a few weeks, we're going to jump into the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we as a church, we preach ex 
expositionally. We, cheat, we, we preach uh, uh, sequentially. We start at verse 1, chapter 1, and we work our way through books of the Bible or sections of the Bible. So we get the full point of what the author originally intended and let that then fuel our, uh, our understanding of the Bible and our application of how to live in light of it. And so sometimes we preach uh, topically and thematically like we're doing today, and that's okay, but those are like vitamins in the Christian life. Expositional preaching is the meat, the, what you need uh, in your life. And so all that to say is here we are, we're diving in the midst of it. So I want you to see the context, but the thrust of it is verse 18. The thrust, the point where we are going today, the unfailing truth that I want you to be convinced of is that Jesus builds his church. You see his promise there. He says, I will build my church. Underline that, star it, whatever you do in your Bible. And let's get in now to see the bigger context here. That's what it's about. Jesus saying, I will build my church. But how do we access it, right? How do we, how do we get into this? How do, we, how do we know that Jesus has made this promise? How do we get in on the action? Well, point number one, if you're taking notes is, well, do you know him? Do you know him? You got to know the right person to talk to, right? You got to know the right person to talk to. And so in verse 13, Jesus, he has taken his disciples and he's gone into the far north region of Galilee. If you had a map of Israel, you, you know, the Jerusalem's kind of in the center of the country and the northern region is uh, what is known as Galilee. It's very beautiful. It's lush. It's green. It's the pastures. The southern part of Israel is called the Negev and it's, it's barren down there. It's a lot of dirt. There's not a whole lot. It actually kind of looks like the Texas hill country, you know, very rocky, very stony short trees, all those things. But Jesus is up there and he's in this district of Caesarea Philippi. And it's interesting that he's here. There's a lot made from this. This was a center of pagan worship. Um, there's, there's actually, you can go there even today, but there's like this pit that goes uh, down and, and some religions think that's like to the pit of hell, okay? Um, that, that's, that's where, you know, Satan comes back and forth and all this. And so there's lots of ideas, lots of, of uh, um, non-Christian ideas about this section. And it's interesting now that Jesus and his disciples are there when he asks this very pointed question. He's saying, well, who do they say that the Son of Man is? Who, who are others? He's asking, what's the talk around town? What's, what's the reputation about who I am? This is, you know, into his ministry a ways. There's been a lot of miracles and things that have happened through Jesus. And he's saying, what's, you know, what, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And this is a reference to Daniel 7. You can take that down if you want. Um, but it's a, it's a reference to there. What's this talk around town? And so they threw out some good answers, right? Well, some say John the Baptist. He'd been uh, killed, and so is he resurrected? You know, these Elijah, these kind of like all-stars of the Old Testament is their answer. That Jesus is in the line of, of those guys. So that's kind of the talk around town, they say. But who is Jesus, you know? What's the talk around town, us? If you were to go up to somebody here in New Braunfels and just say, who would you say that Jesus is? You might get some answers like this. Some say Jesus is a legend, right? He's just a myth. He never really existed. He's like Santa or the tooth fairy. He's, uh, um, you know, he's, he makes us feel good and he's whatnot, but he's, he's just a legend, right? Others might say, well, he's a, a fraud. That yes, he existed, but he has pulled off the greatest con that the world has ever known, right? That he, uh, his, through his teachings, now they've been perpetuated for centuries, and, uh, uh, but he wasn't really who he said he was. He was just a fraud. He's a fake, a liar even. You might ask others, and they might say, well, he's a, a good teacher, right? 
He's a good, he's a good teacher. Yes, he existed. He's maybe even a prophet like the answers here. You know, other religions even acknowledge this. Muslims would say, yes, Jesus is a good teacher. He's a prophet. He had some good things to say, but, uh, but he, he, he was not God. He was just a guy that existed that had some helpful things to uh, advance humanity, but nothing beyond that. Still others might say, well, he's the savior of the whole world. You ask a Texan, that might be your, you know, the answer that you get. Because pretty much everybody has heard of Jesus around here, right? Like, uh, have you met anybody you know, within New Braunfels or others that would say, Jesus, who's that? Like, never met him. Like, he's not some unfamiliar character. But they would say, he's the savior of the whole world, right? He died on a cross for sins. And they would have a basic understanding. There's an acknowledgement of it, but no acceptance, no faith, no repentance, no genuine personal relationship with the Lord. And this seems like a good answer, doesn't it? Like, oh, he's the savior of the world. But that's just the information part. There's no transformation or relational part of it. And so Jesus is asking these things. We, it bears us uh, so, uh, some bearing to, to ask the same question. Well, what do other people say? But then notice where Jesus goes next. He's, he gets the kind of the general population. What do they say? What's the, my reputation around town? But then he gets real personal. But who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? When confronted with the question personally, it gets a little bit more uncomfortable, right? Who is Jesus? And so I've left a space in your notes like, to really answer that question now. Like fill in that blank. I don't have the answer for you, but who do you say Jesus is? Jesus is what? Take a moment. Think through. How would you answer this question? Got your answer yet? I wonder if you would answer it like this preacher from a different age. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He 
forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him for you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Was your answer like that? <laughs> I was going to attempt to preach like that, but I've just resigned myself that I, there's no way that uh, I can preach like S.M. Lockridge, uh, African-American pastor from a, a different era. And I, I came across that about a decade ago, and it, every time I listen to it, it gives me goosebumps because that's our king. That's our king. So whatever answer you put there, did you put, was it something of that? Jesus is what? What is Jesus to you? Who do you say that Jesus is? And let's see Peter's answer here. Do you know this Jesus? Because Peter now, in verse 16, he gives a very personal but pointed answer. He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, in another word, or the Savior, the Son of the living God. Do you know him? Not just know of him, not just uh, uh, know about him, but do you truly know him and are walking with him? That's the answer. That's what you can do today. It's a simple confession, a call to deny yourself and to walk with Jesus. And Peter's response here, our response when we confess Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, the Son of the living God, look at how Jesus replies. He says, blessed are you, don't we want to be a blessed people? Don't we want to be a happy people? Don't we want to be those that Christ says are blessed? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, his full name, Bar meaning son of, his dad's name Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For you know what? You didn't learn this by signs and wonders. You didn't get this just on the spectacle or, or based on all the things here, but God in his infinite love and mercy towards you, remove the blinders for heaven itself, the Father in heaven revealed this to you, who I am. And you have now responded, confessing this Jesus, confessing me as your Messiah, as your Savior. This is the one. God removes the blinders. This is how we gain access to it. Do you know him? 
Do you know this Jesus? Do you know where the source of our success comes from? You have to know this right man, but then you also have to do business with him, right? And so this is our second point. This is where Jesus takes us based on the response. He says, are you banking with him then? Are you doing business with the Lord? And a lot hangs on this verse here, verse 18 here. After Peter responds the way that he does, confessing Jesus as the Christ, Jesus blessing him for doing it, then he goes a step further, and in verse 18, this is what we are convinced of. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And so, like I said, there, there's been a lot of debate about this. The Protestant Reformation, which incidentally began 500 years ago. I don't know if you're church history buffs, but 500 years ago was when it really kind of began. There was rumblings of it before that, but 500 years ago is when Martin Luther, he tacked those 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg Chapel. And, uh, and then things rapidly changed. And a lot was built on the understanding of this verse here. And so Peter, he's given this unique place in, from Jesus in, in the line of, of, uh, uh, of, of church history. And he's given a unique place as the initiator, right, of uh, the preaching of the gospel and the initiating uh, of the church age. And so based on what Peter just said, now, now Jesus blesses him and says, now you are going to lead the charge here. The book of Acts tells the story of this, right? After Jesus then leaves the the church age, uh, the Holy Spirit comes, and then the church age begins. And Peter preaches that first message, and you know, I think you know the story, right? Acts 2, 3,000 come to the faith. Like that's, whew. can you imagine preaching that much and, and, and that many people coming to know the Lord? And then the book of Acts is, is all about the, uh, the dissemination of that and the advancement of the church begun here with Peter and the apostles. In, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 2.20, it says that, that the apostles and prophets are the foundation on which the church is built. Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Like the song we just sang. It's built on Christ as the cornerstone, which everything else is measured by. And these apostles as the foundation, the ones proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gives Peter this very special and unique place in church history, but with Jesus' guarantee now, then the situation changes because it began with him, but now we as the church, we continue to advance it. Peter began it. Now it's been handed to us and the situation has changed. So what do we do? We set out on mission following heaven's orders. That's what we do, and that's where it goes from here. He makes this promise, and then look, there's, it's, it's kind of confusing language, right? Admittedly, it is. The rest of verse 18 and 19, like what is this talking about? Gates and keys, all these things. But really what Peter's saying in a nutshell is he's saying, now we set out on mission following heaven's orders. That's what he's telling him. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One commentator says on this verse here, he says, this is the basis of all hope for those who see Jesus as the Messiah and builds his people. The fact that Jesus said, I will build it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so let me just unpack this here for you briefly. What does this mean? What are the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Well, what are gates? They're defensive measures, right? They're to keep people out, or to keep people stuck inside. And so the, 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 there's gates there at hell, the imagery is here, but what does that mean the church is to be doing? The church is on the offensive, 
The church is on the offensive, out there, uh, advancing the mission, pro proclaiming the gospel. It's not meant to be hit upon, but Jesus is building his church to go on the offensive, busting down the gates, storming the stronghold with the good news of Jesus. That's what's implied here. So we set out on mission. What is it all about these keys here? What are keys a symbol of, right? Keys are symbols of authority and responsibility. In ancient times, they would give keys to the city, to the steward of the city, right? And then they had the, the responsibility, that stewardship, they were entrusted with the rule of the city. And so if the king left and he gave it to somebody, he said, here, you have the keys to the city. Rule like I would rule, make decisions like I would make decisions, and, and do this in my stead, following the orders that I've given you, but following my direction. It's also similar to this now and like when we give our keys to our teenagers, right? Anybody in that boat? Raised teenagers or had teenagers and you give, it, give the keys to the car to them? And what, are, yeah, it's scary, right? I was one of those once upon a time too. And all of us, you know, but we gave it. And what were our parents, whether they said it outright or not, what were they saying? They were saying, drive like I would drive. Well, maybe some of you weren't, didn't say that, right? Drive like I would drive, drive responsibly, don't do anything that I wouldn't do, follow the rules, follow the laws. And there's, there's a sense of responsibility and authority that's given, like you now have the keys to this car. And that's what is being said here. That's what, that's what all these things, there's a lot of, you know, convoluted things. We don't have to go into it. But basically what Jesus is saying is now you have the authority set out on a mission. You have the responsibility to do this. Now follow heaven's orders. Follow my will. What happens in heaven, now make it happen here and, uh, and stay connected to me. So as the church, banking on the promise of Jesus to build it, what do we do? We set out on mission against hell, following heaven's orders to do the things that God has promised to advance the gospel. Those things that God has said that he will bless, that he transforms people's life, the things that even hell itself cannot prevail against it. We call these our pillars in this church. What are we to do? How do we build a church? Well, we stay faithful to these four simple things. They're on the black banners in here. We stay faithful to unashamed adoration or unashamed worship. God has promised that he shows up he changes lives when we are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. When we come before him and we're, we're, we're just unashamed, we're, un, we're not worried, we're unfettered about what anybody else is thinking because here my focus is on the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness and just how marvelous God is. He also promises to bless the unapologetic proclamation of his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so as God's people opens God's book and the herald lets just God's word out, people's lives are changed. We come under its authority. We come under its, uh, its, its instruction for us and we apply it into our life seeking to follow its commands. God shows up through unceasing prayer. We really truly believe that God hears and answers prayer. And so we want to be a praying people, a dependent people, knowing that God will come through. Even if he doesn't always change the situation in the way that we want to, the act of praying, he changes the prayer in that act of praying. So God works and we are a praying church. Another pillar, our final pillar is what we say, unafraid witness. Sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. Christ builds his church as we as his people are just unafraid about it. We don't have to be uh, weirdos about it or militant about it or beating people up about it by any means. But we're just eager and ready to share with anybody that would listen to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, how we can be saved from sin. And when we do that, 
when we with genuine hearts attune to those that God is working in, God shows up and he changes lives. And we bank upon that. Now it seems simple, right? It's like, well, yeah, isn't that what church is about? Preaching, worship, praying, evangelism. Yeah, it's that simple because that's what God has told us to do. And so we don't want to veer from it. He's given us the plan. He's given us the blueprint. And so that's why we're passionate about it and won't drift from it, seeking to build a house that's any different. These are the things that God has done. These are the orders that we've been given from God's word. Great Commission says that, that when we do these things, then Jesus, he leaves that and he says, lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. You want Christ to walk with you? I do. I want Christ to be with me. And that happens, that promise is attached to the Great Commission when we are telling the world of Jesus Christ. But we have to, there's this one part here, this verse 20, now that we've gotten it, it says, why does Jesus uh, hush him up? You notice that? He strictly charged them. I mean, that's not just like, hey, don't tell anybody about this. But that, that, there's some weight with that, right? Like strictly charge them. Don't tell anybody about what just happened here. Why would he do that? You just told us to go. You just told us to go storm the gates of hell. You just told us to carry out your orders. Now, why do we have to keep quiet about it right now? Well, uh, he does this elsewhere too. You, as you read through the book of Matthew, and I hope that you do, maybe this week even, take a few chapters a day. But you'll see this as uh, along the way that Jesus is telling them specifically at this point in his ministry, just to keep quiet about it. Because what Jesus was doing was so profound and so radical that it was drawing massive amounts of people. Crowds were, were coming upon him, but what were they looking for? They were just looking to be a part of the show. Anybody can fill a, a, a stadium full of people with, you know, performing all these sleight of hands and tricks and things. And that's what, the, that's what the word was spreading. Like this was some show. And Jesus had no interest in entertainment. He had no interest in, in those things, but only in transformation and discipleship. That's what he wanted. So he wasn't telling, hey, don't tell anybody. But he's just saying, let's kind of keep this on the DL so the word doesn't spread. The, th the wrong things get out. And, uh, and we just have a bunch of people that want to see the show. And so this was just for a unique time so Jesus could be unhindered in carrying out his ministry. Because he was interested in this transformation, this discipleship, which is what we are interested in as well. We want people, we want to tell anybody and everybody about what God is doing in our own life and through our church because we want to see the same type of transformation, the growth in the Lord happening in their life as well. So like I said here, Peter and the apostles, they're initiating the church age. God has given them this unique uh, uh, opportunity. They're the initial investors into this bank, right? They are the initial people that have come and, uh, and, and got this thing off the ground, the foundation. And now we are the one advancing it to the nations. We are the ones that are carrying it on and going forward in this bank, drawing on what Christ has put into it. Because here's the reality. Jesus put all of his eggs in the church basket. All of his resources are in the church bank. He did, there's, there's no plan A for the Great Commission. Nothing else, no NGO, no nonprofit, no governmental or social uh, organization has the guarantee that the church has like this in verse 18. But he said, I will build my church. Because that's what Jesus is about. Because the church is not about the place, is it? It's about the people. 
And so Jesus put all of his eggs here in this basket. The church is the ones that are, are, we're charged with guarding and upholding the truth. We're charged with being a place of refuge for the weary, a place of belonging for the displaced, a place of correction for the unruly and encouragement for the faint-hearted and help for the weak. We are to welcome without judgment, to love without condition, and to forgive without limit. That's what we do. That's what Christ has called us to do as the church because Jesus himself died for the church, for the people, people of God, you and I who are in Christ today. That's why he's building his church and that's why he's entrusted it to this thing, to this institution, to this organization, to the church. God's people gathered corporately and collectively here. How does he do this? How does Jesus build his church then? He said, I will do it. We know what we are to do through our pillars, but what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus builds his church by his perfect life. The perfect life. He was the only one that did everything that he could do, er, that we were called to do through the law and please God without fail. He was the only innocent person to ever be face consequences that he did not deserve. Some people say, well, why do good things happen to, to or why do bad things happen to good people rather? Well, that's happened once in the history of humanity. Jesus was a good man, the only truly good man that lived a perfect life and pleasing the Father. He also builds it by his perfect death, setting us free from sin and death, right? By dying in our stead. That, he was our replacement, our substitute, that perfect death. He, do, he builds it by his perfect power, raising again, defeating the grave, defeating hell, ruling and reigning perfectly now in his perfect rule as well, interceding and acting on our behalf, even here and now. Jesus today stands, he's interceding on our behalf to the Father as we pray. That's why we, that's why we pray and say in Jesus' name, because Jesus is the one. It's just our acknowledgement to Christ. It's not like some magic potion that we close our prayers. It's just our acknowledgement that you, Jesus, are interceding for us. Take this now to the Father. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven He's interceding and acting on our behalf for our good, for our salvation. That's how Christ builds his church. And we build it by staying faithful to the mission, staying faithful to the pillars, because our success is not in church growth. It's not in a fancy logo or in banners or advertising, but it's in Jesus' promise to build it, is it not? It's in Jesus' promise to build it. If, if there was not the character and the ability, the competence behind this phrase, I will build my church, then what we are doing here is in vain. We can't go anywhere. We can't do, uh, we can't see transformation and discipleship and worship happen apart from Christ working on our behalf, fulfilling his promise, and we as his reliable subcontractors carrying out, you know, uh, our trades, build, following the building plans of heaven and the blueprints of scripture, we follow in Christ's footsteps. And let me tell you this, beloved, Christ has a past history of perfect faithfulness. When he said he would do it, he will do it. It's as good as done. As good as done. John 14, he said, I wouldn't have told you these things if I wasn't going to do it. He's not a liar. He's not a fraud. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Apostle Paul says, faithful is he who calls us and he will surely do it. That's the source of of success in anything. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. One of the ways that we get a chance to remember this often of what Christ did for us 
is through the Lord's table, communion or the Lord's supper. But this is where we remember what Christ did, what was a promised long ago in the Old Testament. Then we see fulfilled before our very eyes in the New Testament. Did you know that? It was, it was prophesied that, uh, that there, a Messiah would come and he would die on our behalf as far back as in Genesis 3.15. This would happen. And then all throughout the Old Testament, this is unfolding before our very eyes. And so the fact that we know that Christ died on our behalf, the fact that we know the good news is now proof for us that God is faithful to his word. And so if he's fulfilled those things in every promise that he's made that we've seen fulfilled, some yet to be fulfilled for sure, but a whole host of them, several thousand promises and things prophesied in the Old Testament fulfilled. Will he not surely do it? Will he not surely succeed? Will the church not advance like he said that it would? So as we take communion, this is our reminder that God is faithful to those things. This is our reminder that we are united to Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's also our symbol that we are united together in Christ. That's why the scriptures give warning about uh, taking it in an unworthy manner. And so in just a moment, we're going to...